Um, so if you'd, be, if you'd be so gracious to let me uh, just jump into Ephesians 4 this morning. I, just to maybe give you a little clue of where, of where I want to head this morning. I think this chapter is so powerful in part because of its direct, immediate interplay between unity, oneness, togetherness, and yet at the same time, diversity, uniqueness, difference, intentional difference. You see, the first six verses paint this picture of, of unity and oneness, and Paul immediately turns the corner to explain how human design is distinct, especially in terms of giftedness for ministry as apportioned by Jesus, divinely ordained, not an accident. He goes from one body, one spirit, one hope to which we are called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, over all. And yet to each of us, we have a little bit different by divine intention. And the point of that divinely ordained uniqueness in gifting and, per, and perspective and posture in the way that we pursue and do ministry together, the divinely ordained uniqueness is, is to equip the body for mission that we might become a mature expression of the church, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What is that? The whole measure of the fullness of Christ, attaining to this maturity. So we won't be blown back and forth by every single word, every single wave, uh, uh, but that we would, in speaking the truth in love, we would grow up into maturity. See, what I want to say this morning is that in this family, in this underground family, we're all different, yet we all get to play. All of us. And that there isn't just one person or one gift or one personality or one type that gets to hold all the keys. We all get to play. We all have a role. Did you guys ever play that McDonald's Monopoly game? When, like growing up, does that still exist? Does that still happen every once in a while? I, was, I remember growing up when I used to eat McDonald's way back. I definitely don't do that anymore. Guys, I eat McDonald's. <laughs> That thing was awesome. That, it was like their, one of their best marketing ploys. I think second best marketing ploy was those miniature Beanie Babies, if you remember those. But like top-notch marketing ploy was the, the, the McDonald's Monopoly thing. And, uh, and I used to run through so many, I mean just burn through so many hash browns and french fries and large drinks when you only need a small or whatever, but you get the pieces. And just trying to do whatever I could to get Boardwalk Avenue, you know, it's like you just couldn't find that thing. Where was that? And, you know, I probably shaved years off the back end of my life trying to find electric, the electric company. Where's the electric company? Or, you know, whatever. Trying to match those pieces, get those prizes. You know, we were just obsessed. Every year there would be between about 30 and 50 major prize pieces, either, either instant win pieces or these like rare uh, uh, properties. Uh, that would basically ensure that you could get one of these major prizes. And those, those major prizes ranged from, or those general, generally the prizes ranged from a free additional hash brown or a, or a free ice cream cone or an additional hamburger or whatever. Or you could get all the way up to uh, Sega Game Gear. What, what, Sega when that was a thing? Or, or a Game Boy or you, or you could get a, a trip to Jamaica or 
a PT Cruiser or a Dodge Viper or cash prizes ranging from $5,000, $10,000, $25,000 all the way up to a million dollars, the ever so sought for million dollar instant prize or if you marked Park Place to Boardwalk, obviously a million dollar prize. In the year 2000, the FBI received an anonymous tip that the Monopoly game was rigged. And that the anonymous tip actually told the FBI, they didn't call McDonald's, they called the FBI, which I think is strange, but they called the FBI and they said the Monopoly's game is rigged, it's being defrauded, and we don't know how it's happening, but the reason why we're calling you to tell you is because there's this close-knit family in Jacksonville, Florida, that has won three different million dollar prizes and a Dodge Viper over the course of five years. So we don't know what's going on, but something's going on. And I would think McDonald's would be like, what's, what's happening here? <laughs> but they call the FBI and they're like, something's going on here. So the FBI decides to look into it. And the FBI, uh, 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 it comes down to this, in, in the McDonald's world, it comes down to this one guy who is, who is in total control of these 30 to 50 major prize game pieces. His name was Jerry Jacobson. And Jerry Jacobson, what would happen is, is from like the marketing firm, he would get these 30 to 50 like, like major prize pieces. And, he, and they'd be like in a safe, like controlled, 15 people watching it, impossible to get in there. And he would put them in a sealed envelope, all of them, and he would travel around the country, get flown around the country to McDonald's distribution centers. He'd get to a distribution center, pull out a handful, maybe 10, 12, and he'd just go up to random pallets of cups or french fry boxes or whatever, and he would just, and he would just place, a, place a sticker, maybe two, three stickers, and go to a different pallet, place a few more, and he'd fly to a different distribution system, totally randomized where these went. But about a few years into uh, having that job, he, re he found a way to pull all those 30 to 50 major prize game pieces out, replace them with basic game pieces, hold on to all the 30 to 50 major game pieces, and over the course, of the FBI figured out that Jerry Jacobson, otherwise known as Uncle Jerry, was the, the peak of a crime syndicate for 13 years that was distributing major prize game pieces to mobsters, convicts, drug traffickers, strip club owners, and even a small collective of Mormons, strangely. Uh, <laughs> And they, over the course of 13 years, from 1988 to 2001, defrauded the McDonald's company of over $24 million in cash and prizes. And when I was reading this story, it came out on the Daily Beast last week, this long, long story detailing that investigation, what happened. When I was reading it, I was like, I knew it! You knew it too! You knew it too! You would eat all those hash browns and you would think, this piece does not exist, this piece is not in the world. And you were right, you were right, I was right too. Like, there is no... There is no Baltic Avenue. There is no boardwalk, park, place. These things don't exist. And we were right. We were right. The system was rigged. The system was rigged. Uncle Jerry was passing these things down to people and getting little like $10,000, $20,000 kickbacks. People were paying twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 for like the million dollar game piece. One time in 1995, he had a little bit of a conscience and he sent a $1 million instant win game piece to St. Jude's Research Hospital. They opened it up and they were like, what is this? And they were like, oh my gosh, it's the million dollar game piece from an anonymous source and St. Jude Research just actually cashed in on that million dollars in 1995. The FBI ended up setting up a sting 
uh, in Jacksonville, Florida in 2001 after 18 years of, of investigating this and they, they brought the check to an instant winner but that winner had actually received the prize from Uncle Jerry and they, the FBI agents were behind the cameras and FBI agents were being McDonald's representatives or whatever and cr created this big sting, broke the thing wide open. The game was rigged to serve a select few. And I was read, as I was reading it, I was obviously getting angry about my, my middle school years and my high school years of like really believing. I mean, I would fantasize about trying to break into McDonald's and get like a stack of cups and there had to definitely be a good piece in there. Like I'd definitely get a good piece. And, and, and just feeling the anger of that. But at the same time, I almost started to, to, to feel like uh, uh, we've had this experience before. And I started... I started to remember the feeling, actually. Just because I was thinking about this weekend, I was thinking about this text, I started to remember the feeling of giving five, six, seven years of my life and my, and my leadership uh, to a church community who told me all along the way, there's a, there's a, play, there's a p place for you to, to play here. There's a role for you. Everybody gets to play, and realizing at the back end, the system was rigged. And there was really only one or two people holding all the pieces. And really, if you, if you couldn't preach or teach, there really wasn't a place for you to play. <laughs> and, and, the, and the game was rigged. And coming up at the end and feeling like, I gave so much to this. And certainly there's no place to, to dream or have vision because that might seem, be seen as threatening to unity because the unity would be kind of perceived as sameness. We all have to see the same thing, believe the same thing, pursue the same thing, Pursue it the same way. Be very, very similar. And coming up at the end of that and feeling very frustrated that I did not actually have a role to play. That not everybody could play the game. Only a select few could. And there just wasn't much else to do. But I think the word this morning, and a lot of us have been, have been chasing this for some time, and it's not new, I just want to remind you that God has invited every disciple to be a priest in the priesthood of all believers. And at the same time, he's wired every single priest in that priesthood a unique way. And he wants you to live into that uniqueness that he's given you and join this redemptive mission, this adventure. See, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And he apportioned that grace uh, uh, to a degree in part as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These, these uh, uh, dispositions of leadership, these offices or functions of leadership, life, and mission in the church. And I know we've done, we've done a lot of work in this community on those, on those five things, so I'm just going to really briefly maybe do a little bit of, a, uh, of an overview of what Paul is trying to say here, what he's delivering. You see, apostles, uh, uh, the, this Greek rendering of the word mission, apostles are, are someone sent, they're sent ones, but in that kind of function in the church, an apostle's very entrepreneurial. They're always looking at what's next. What are we not doing? What's the new thing to do? And they're, they're wasting very little time trying to make better things that already exist. They're always like on the vanguard or the edge or the frontier of what the church is doing, wrestling with God. What's, what's the new thing you want? What's the new wine? What's the next thing for us? Prophets are in tune with the voice and the character of God. They're often calling people to remember him. They're, they're always calling people to actually to, to remember that, that, that he isn't fully uh, explained or contained in any given system, but there's always more. There's always more to him. There's always something we don't quite get. 
Uh, and, there, and there's at the same time, there's, there's things that we're doing that need like an encouraging, affirming word. This is beautiful. And at the same time, uh, uh, they're, they're a lot of times calling people to change or repentance um, and challenging the status quo. You don't get a status quo if you activate prophets. They keep it from being so. Evangelists love, love people who don't know Jesus. They just like baseline have a love and a hunger for people that don't know Jesus. They're usually more comfortable with people who don't know Jesus and get a little uncomfortable in primarily dominated just Christian spaces. Uh, a lot of times they're very invitational. They gather people very easily, very involuntarily uh, for things. Shepherds or pastors operate out of a place of compassion. They want to nurture the people of God. Uh, they're involuntarily empathetic, and they're always wanting to help people be restored to some kind of wholeness. Teachers make sense of the Word of God for us. Uh, they're, they're zealously hunger, hunger, hungry for the Word. They hunger for truth, and they usually, cannot, uh, they, they usually have a gift or a knack for taking the complexities of the Word and being able to deliver it to people in a way that's understandable, relevant, receivable. See, these five types working together in harmony in the church make it possible for us to strive toward the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in the world, to grow up in, a, in the unity of faith and the knowledge of, some, of the Son of God into maturity when these five are working together to equip the body and mission and works of service. Maybe just like a quick, a quick uh, a visual image to maybe understand a little bit better how these five works. If there, if there was like a team of leaders in a, in a church or in, or in your microchurch, if there's like a, t a team, a perfect little team of five leaders who, who have a dominant gift in each of these five uh, uh, functions or spaces, and they get together for a meeting, it might look something like this. I mean, probably the apostolic leader called the meeting because the apostolic leader, she, she has this idea. She's got this dream that, 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 that nobody's ever thought of, and it's this brand new thing we want to do. So the apostolic leader says, let's get everybody together. Let's have a meeting. And so then everybody gets in the room, and she's like, here's what I want to do. Here's the event that, that, that's brand new. I think we should take it on. Here's what I think it adds, whatever. And immediately the prophet in the room is going to think, but is that what God wants right now? Do you, I mean, is that, is that really hitting the mark of what God wants right now? Is it, is it missing something? Is it missing something? Should we do something else? Should we do something else? And the, the shepherd in the room starts to immediately ask, how is that event going to make people feel? Is it going to make them feel included and loved and seen? Or, or, or is, there, is it going to help restore people, move people toward wholeness? Uh, and the teacher in the room is immediately starting to think, what does that event uh, uh, directly or, or indirectly communicate about the truth of God and how you're doing it and what you're saying and what you're presenting? Uh, 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 what, what's it actually saying about who God is and, and, and what he's like? Uh, does it step outside somehow, subtly outside of orthodoxy about who God is? And the evangelists realized what the meeting was about and they left five minutes in. They were like, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm so bored. I'm so bored. I've got to go find people who don't know Jesus. <laughs> See, in your microchurches, I, I, I think just, just really subtly, I just want to maybe ask a little, a little bit of a question that you can wrestle with. Is your microchurch a space where all of these, these, these gifts can come to the table? Or are you holding on to all the game pieces? I think part of what's happening here is like, like Jesus wants every expression of the church to be equipped to the whole measure of maturity, and it requires influence from each of these types of leaders, each of these functions. And certainly on the network level, we have lots of, 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 of prophets and evangelists and apostles and teachers, but, but 
the, the underground isn't, isn't like the only kind of predominant expression of the church. You're the church. And so he actually wants to see all of your people actually grow up in maturity in the unity of faith and the knowledge of Son of God so that they won't be tossed back and forth. And that's going to require influence from all of these types of leaders. And, and, and so I just wonder, is there space in, in the table? Are you hungry? Do you want leaders that are not quite like you who might complement your leadership? Are you looking for those people? Are you asking Jesus for those pe- people to be ri- ro- risen in your midst uh, to, comp- to help you, to be a gift to you, but to be a gift to the broader community that you serve and lead. See, I think God wants to raise up leaders around you that complement you are a gift to you. And, and at the same time, we need to continue to take into consideration that if you lose, if you lose or don't have the voice of one of these five types over the long haul, the church runs the risk of becoming a little bit deformed. If you lose apostles, then you lose missional vision for the frontier and you become insular. You, you turn inward, you look inward, you become a little bit, a bit of a bubble. See, apostles help us dream about what might be instead of obsessing over what currently is. If you lose prophets, you lose the voice of God and you, can, you run the risk of becoming a dead legalistic religion. See, prophets help remind us not just to always describe the God of history, but to hear and know the God in the room. That's what prophets do. And the God who can never be contained and is always on the move. You lose evangelists and your ministry has a two-generation shelf life, I'm telling you. If, if, you, if, you, if you stifle or shut down like the voice and the gifting of evangelists, you, you've, you've dug the grave of your microchurch and you're just, you're just living toward it. And at the same time, you run the risk of losing connection with the God who leaves the 99 in search of the one that has been lost. You lose shepherds and you lose compassion and love. You, you run the risk of becoming an organization that harms people. You run the risk of, of becoming something that has an open back door that people pass through with wounds. If you lose teachers, you lose the truth. Uh, you run the risk of, of, of stepping outside of orthodoxy. You run the risk over the long haul of becoming apostate. And I just, I just want to, to be clear, I don't think you should feel bad or afraid or guilty, not at all. If you don't have all five of these functions just rocking on all cylinders in your microchurch and, 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 and it, like everybody has a voice and influence and there's space for all that leadership, I don't think you should feel bad or afraid or guilty because I think that's unrealistic to actually think right away you'll start with, with all that in place or even in the first year that all that leadership will rise up. What I'm asking is, do you want it? Are you open to it? Are you looking for it? Are you asking Jesus for it? Uh, because, because if not, there's this risk that we might be involuntarily only looking for leadership that's like us and not making space and wanting and hungering for those, that, that leadership that complements us in our microchurches. You see, the point is that Jesus wants to equip your people in all five capacities and you can't be everything for them. And he wants to raise up equippers in your midst so that your microchurch can thrive in maturity and to reach the fullness of the measure of Christ Jesus in the world. But in the meantime, maybe when you're just starting or maybe in the first couple years or maybe as you're waiting for Jesus to raise up those leaders, I think this is one of the immense gifts of having a unified, committed covenantal network of microchurches pursuing the kingdom of God and engaging every evil in the city with prayerful action together. 
that we as a network of unique leaders with diverse gift sets, we all get to play in God's redemptive mission in this city, and there is room for us to influence one another, stir one another, press into one another, spur one each other on, learn from one another, submit to one another, and actually fill in some of those gaps that we don't have within our microchurch. It's a gift. It's a supernatural gift of the way in which God is equipping us as a network, a family of missionaries when we have access to it. And as we make every effort to, the, to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, remembering that we are members of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism under the care of one God and Father of all. I saw this amazing commercial last year and I just kind of thought about it in the last couple of days and I thought, it, I thought it was a really meaningful vision and expression of what we're talking about this morning. So I wanted to show you this commercial. Uh, it's a commercial for KLM Airlines. I think that's an airline. Uh, uh, and I thought it was just a beautiful story that they tell in this commercial. Let's go ahead and take a look. All the feels happened. <laughs> Christmas dinner in an airport. Christmas dinner in an airport. See, in 2006, 2007, a few, a few leaders on the, the foundation of what we know now as the underground were brave enough to be the first ones to sit alone at a table, to look strange, to look weird, to experiment, to explore all because they were hungry for God's kingdom banquet and saw a new thing. And over time, more joined this wacky community, this weird community, this strange community. And some were invited to take a seat. Some, some, some had a couple seats next to them and were just pulling people in, like, let's do this. Let's come on. Let's, there's an open seat here. And, and some people just came up to the table, not because they were invited, but because they were hungry for the same banquet. They were hungry for that same kingdom banquet. And sometimes over the course of the last 10 years, some of us have, have tried to lean over and lay down on three or four different seats, try to get that sucker down, you know, and we've tried to, because we, there, there's so much need, there's so many roles, so much, there's so much space that's need to be filled. We've tried to put our elbow on some and our leg on another, but, but, but guys, Jesus has just rose people up to sit in those seats. We don't have to sit in all those anymore. 
And Jesus is just bringing fresh leadership, fresh, fresh hunger, and new people to come and play, new people to come to the banquet. And here we are, guys, a table filled with people who wouldn't otherwise maybe know each other, maybe wouldn't otherwise like each other, maybe wouldn't otherwise hang out. But listen, we're, we're just sitting around and we found a banquet. And here we are sitting together from different backgrounds, different concerns, different, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different experiences, different cultures and ethnicities, different nationalities with different skills, different abilities, different stories. And yet we found ourselves at the same banquet table. And guys, there's always room for one more. There's always another seat. There's always another chair. See, in this family, guys, in this underground family, we're all different, and yet we all get to play. And there's a seat for you at this table. And when you sit, guys, listen, when you come and sit, we're all better for it. We're all better for it. I want to invite Emily to come up and the worship team to prepare. I, I have, um, you know, kind of a, a, a bit of a creative symbolic moment for us to, to respond together as a community. That first line of the text I was really caught by, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. To live a life worthy of the calling that you each have received in this priesthood. This is the other piece of the common pursuit that we all share. We all get to play in the adventure. We all get to sit at the table of this kingdom banquet. And yet at the same time, we also share something in common. We all have to strive to live a life worthy of that calling that we have received. To live a life of integrity, to live a life of character, to live a life of love, for God, for our communities, for each other, and for the world that he's trying to, to pursue, to reach, to save. And we cannot live that life without the regenerating power of Christ Jesus indwelling us through his spirit. We cannot live a life worthy of his calling without him actually regenerating us to be able to live a life worthy of his calling. But at the same time, I, would, I, I don't think we can live a life worthy of that calling without each other without an accountable community spurring one another on to live that life of integrity, to live that life of values, and to continue to spur each other on in mission. Don't give up, don't give up. I see you, you're seen, we love you, we see what you're doing, we're praying for you. To do that together. This is exactly why everyone who leads a microchurch, everyone who steps in, takes a seat, every single person, uh, signs and is held accountable to this thing we call the leadership covenant. And it's not because we want to like micromanage your life or get all up in your business. It's because we all want to live a life worthy of our calling. And we all want to be accountable to each other to live that life of character and integrity and commitment. It's and I think it's important for us to regularly remember. Maybe it's been a while since you've read it. Maybe it's been a while since you've seen it. Maybe it's been a while since you thought of it. I think it's important for us to regularly remember that leadership covenant together, to take a moment and to remember that we're trying to pursue that standard of character and integrity, that standard of sacrifice and risk together as a community. We're all doing it together. To take a moment to pray and listen to God and to, and to, and to maybe admit ways in which you've fallen short, you haven't lived up to that standard. And to recommit again to say, Jesus, this is who I want to be. By your grace, by your spirit, would you, would you lead me into this? 
and would you help me to be a gift to my community in doing the same? And so this morning, I'd love to do that. Right at the end of Leadership Summit, you know, it's kind of like a final moment together as we like step back into a new season of ministry and mission to say, guys, God, God, sure, he cares about what you're doing with your hands. He cares about the work of your hands, your strategies, but he cares a whole lot more about who you are, the life that you live, who you're becoming to live a life worthy of that calling that he's given you. So I want to give you a moment. We, we handed out this little, this little sheet which basically contains that, that leadership covenant uh, 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 on the front and back side of it in about two and a half font. You know, we just want to, we're just caring for you. But it's a lot. We wanted it to be kind of manageable for you. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It takes a little while. But it's, 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 they are commitments to God that uh, just about character, integrity, having, a, having, maintaining a relationship with him, maintaining a relationship with his word and study and, and growing in your leadership, a, a commitment to the church and a commitment to the movement at large. And I want you to take a moment, if you're a leader, a microchurch leader, I want you to take a moment to sit with Jesus to, to maybe read some of that if you want to and to kind of freshen up on some of it, but at the same time to just say, say, God, this is who, this is who I want to be. This, this document makes my heart sing, and I just want to recommit this myself to you. I want to recommit myself to this standard, and I want to recommit with, not as an individual, but with this community to, to all of us live lives worthy of the calling that we've been given. And if you're if you're brand new, if you just strolled in, if you're not a leader of a microchurch, guys, you can still read it. We've kind of made it, we've kind of made it open, and we still want you to read it. And if your heart sings, if you're like, yes, 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 that's who I want to be, that's how I want to live, that's the, that's the kind of life, those are, those are my values, then you can come and sign too. You can come and say, yes, I'm in. I want to be a part of that community. I want to live that kind of life. So I'm going to give you a moment to pray, to have a moment with Jesus, to maybe read some of it. And then I'm going to invite uh, uh, the community to, to respond by coming up and signing again on this podium, uh, the Leadership Covenant. And, um, and I think it's also important to take communion before you do that. Uh, to, to re instead of signing that document and then taking communion, I think that's backwards. We cannot live that life, guys, unless we have been brought from death to life and been indwelled by the spirit of God and resurrection power and so we come to the table to remember and then those of you who want to opt in to this standard of leadership and care in this community I'm inviting you to recommit this morning so take a moment with the Lord pray discern maybe have a moment of confession and then I'll invite I'll invite you to respond
Jesus, as we, as a missionary community, as we kind of come to the close of, of a weekend together, submitting to you, hearing from you, pressing into you, God, we just right now, we admit that, that none of this has really any meaning unless you bring us from death to life, God. That, that is the most supernatural work we have ever tasted, ever seen the most supernatural work you've ever done, God, is, is, is conquering death on our behalf when there was no other way, motivated by your great love for us. And so this morning, God, we, in response to that great love, we want to live lives of worship to you. Lives of sacrificial worship to you. Take our lives, God, we surrender. Every day, every moment, every decision, every skill, we surrender to you, Jesus. And so, God, we together as a community, we, we want to hold one another to a standard of integrity, God, to a standard of leadership, empowered by you and filled with your grace and your mercy along the way. And so, God, this morning, as we recommit to that, God, in the same way, we're desperate for you to make it so. We're desperate for you to make our lives so. Because without you, we can do nothing. It's in your name. Amen. This morning as we come to the table, we remember, guys, the supernatural work of God in our own lives. And we come away from the table remembering the calling that he has on us worshipful and grateful for the ways that he's uniquely wired us to engage in that calling and committing ourselves to him again and committing ourselves to this community again. On the night he was betrayed, he broke the bread and gave thanks, saying, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, poured it out, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. So, so I'm inviting you to come to the table first to remember what he's done for you. And then those of you who are feeling invigorated to recommit uh, yourself to the leadership covenant that holds this community together, uh, I invite you to sign again the leadership covenant as a broader missionary community. This morning, the body and blood, the elements given for you.